I also want to celebrate all of you. I want to thank you personally for coming today, choosing to be with us today. You know what I think? I think we have no idea how much coming on a Sunday actually helps things tilt towards a greater victory in a battle throughout the Verde Valley. I really think that there's battles every day in our own lives, but I really think that as we come and we get our our light, our fire stoked, and we are just kind of glowing, we come away equipped, uh, we have no idea how every time we come, we're actually adding fuel to the fire of a movement that Jesus Christ started, that the victory is rolling, and the battle is being won. So thank you for choosing to come today. We are continuing, and this is the last Sunday, of this series called When the Devil Knocks. Speaking of battles, I mean, the devil is knocking all the time. He's trying to get in. He's trying to wedge himself into our lives in such a way that he can bring destruction. And we've talked about the devil for two weeks now. We're going to go a third week. And the challenge of this series is to talk in such a way that we don't bring our focus on him. We still focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the victor. And that's where our victory comes from, and that he gets all the glory and honor, that we don't get our focus all off and start getting kind of devil focused. And so that's the challenge. However, we've been looking at him as the deceiver, week one, the accuser, week two, and now this is week three in the conclusion of this three-part series, Destroyer. We're going to jump right into Jesus' words again. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The devil is called the destroyer in multiple places. Revelation has another place where he's called the destroyer. Here, Jesus is speaking kind of in story form. He says, I am the great shepherd. I have this flock. I'm calling them to follow me. But there is a thief, and the thief is trying to pull these sheep away, and he will do everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, again, the focus, let's not give attention to Jesus as much as, whoa, look at the good news here. Jesus has come. He's come that we might have life and have life to the full. I don't know if you're feeling like your life's kind of empty or a little half full. He's come to let life, real life, the eternal kind of life, just fill you up and bubble over and bless people around you. So I'm glad that you've come today. I hope that we will start to sense that God is trying to do something in our own lives together. Our focus today is this. Satan is the destroyer who targets your will with pride. So that is what we're looking at today in particular as his slant, his strategy, his approach. And there's a predictable strategy to target your will with pride. Peter, the apostle, wrote in 1 Peter a warning, a solemn warning to us. Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How many of you have seen on those nature shows where you see a lion chasing down a flock? Okay, ever seen that? Two of you, great. Let's try that again. How many of you have seen that? All right, more of you. Okay, so you got a lion that's prowling, and they're going for someone. We see here a roaring lion looking for someone. Who is that lion looking for? Okay? Now, typically here's where my mind goes. We usually think of, and maybe we've seen this on the nature shows, where they go after the lame, the weak, the slow, easy prey, right? Is that who the devil is looking for? 
Or does it go after the strong? The answer is yes. He does. He goes after the weak. He goes after the strong. And the surprising answer is, after I taught this the first session, I didn't have the story because I didn't know this story. Somebody who uh, did a lot of hunting across the other side of the nation and up into Canada tells a story about how wolves, during the mating season, they don't go for the weak. They go for the alpha male dominant one during the mating season. Why? They're so strong. No, well, they thought they were so strong. They refused to eat. They're just going for a mating. They're just not eating. They're just really overactive. And the wolves have an easy target with the alpha male, the strongest. And you, there's one guy that has antlers after antlers after antlers of the alpha male that's taken down by the wolf. So we're going to go into this concept of pride and strength being a vulnerability. And we see this in Proverbs 16, where we read, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs are uh, Old Testament sayings that are wisdom sayings that are general truths. And you want to see a truth? Watch somebody with pride. Watch long enough, this pride will take them up, 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 and then crash, they come down. There's a predictable pattern with the pride pattern. Now, Satan knows this, Now he knows this really well, because he himself was, before he was Satan, before he was evil, he was in heaven, an angel, one of the highest angels, who then, in his pride, wanted to be like God, and then he fell because of his pride. Now he is in a strategy of taking others with him down the same path that they will fall as well. So we have a surprising point, number one, maybe not too surprising after the words have laid down the groundwork. Number one, for those of you who like to fill in blanks, this is your time. For those of you who hate filling in blanks, this is your time, all right? So here we are. You may never be more vulnerable than when you are full of pride. You may never be more vulnerable than when you're full of pride. Here's the surprise. We think the lion goes after the weak. They're the vulnerable ones. He's going to attack them and grab them, and he does. But often, the weak know they're weak. And in the kingdom, here's how it works. God, help me. I'm just struggling right now. Please help me. And so as a result, we're no longer vulnerable because we recognize that in our weakness, we need God and we depend on him. We're asking for help all the time. The proud, however, they get to the place where they go, I've got this. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. And, and I'm all right. Man, this is so amazing being like me. You know, and then, and then they're taken down and they're more vulnerable because they're not asking for the help. Now, I have a question for you. If I were to ask you the question, when we think of King David, if you're Bible aware, if we think of King David and a massive sin, his greatest sin, his, where he was brought down and fell, what do you think of? Ah, I heard it. All right, you're like me. We always think of the king who... Man, he was finally king and warrior, and he's winning battle after battle, and pretty soon he's so big in himself that when springtime came around, 2 Samuel 11, I believe it is, when springtime came around, which is war season, you know there's baseball season, football season, war season. In war season, <clears throat> in those days, he didn't go to war season. He just hung out at the palace and sent off all his, his under troops and go to war, guys. 
win them again. Come back and tell me all about it. And then he's looking out over the palace and sees a beautiful woman bathing and then he falls. He asks Bathsheba to come on over. He commits adultery. And this sin was so bad that it causes four deaths. Okay? The first death was the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, because of David's pride. He's going to try to cover things up, doesn't want everybody to know. He puts this warrior right in line to be killed, and he is killed. Okay? And then... The baby, which is out of the union of this sin, God is trying to take David, who's belligerent and is not admitting his sin, through a process of maybe humility, and the baby gets ill and dies. There's death too. Now, maybe the little-known fact is that when David commits this adultery, he has adult children. He has other wives. I know, this is old times, kings and many wives. And he has other wives, and his sons hear the whispers of all the servants who know what's really going on, even though David won't admit it. And they go down, and there's, if you read the rest of the story, Amnon and Absalom, eventually, their deaths are directly related back to David's duplicity and the fallen integrity of David. It's just a horrible, horrible thing. So yeah, that sin's a bad one. I'm here to tell you, that's not his worst one. We're going to study what God considers a far worse sin. But when we first look at it, we're going to go, what? Are you kidding me? So we're going to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and you're going to go, what? Everybody on three, after I read this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Already? What? Thank you. That's a census. Taking a census, that's no big deal. That's not a bad thing. In itself, you're right. God asked Moses years and years prior to count the people, and that was all to the glory of God. But in this particular case, look who's whispering. David. Hey, David, count your warriors. Hey, David, count how strong you've begun. Hey, David, see that you've got it all, man. Just start winning battles by sheer intimidation. Just let the other battles and other armies know that you've got all these fighting men and you just win without even battling. Hey, okay. Joab, let's count everybody. Let's just see what is our fighting force. And Joab says, this is a really bad idea, David. This is a role reversal. Joab is usually the impulsive one. He's usually the one that just go, 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 and David is telling him to do something. Joab says, hey, I think this is a really bad idea. King trumps chief. Chief has to go count. He refuses to count two tribes even because this is so repulsive to him. Here's what we read next. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin. Those are two whole tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel in the numbering because the king's command was so repulsive to him. Hey, check this out. This command was also evil. Which command? The command of the king to tell Joab, you got to go count my armies. Bring back the numbers. I want to know how strong are we. I want everybody to know how strong are we. This was evil in the sight of God. You're thinking, there's nothing like adultery and killing her husband and all this other stuff. Well, let's keep reading the story. This is worse. Now, before we move on, let me just say, every sin has at its root pride. I don't care what sin, what disobedience of God's ways and will you commit, has at its root pride. Here's how it works. God says, don't 
we say, well, but I want to. And we do. And we do because of pride. We want it to be about what I think, my will, my kingdom, I'm boss, I'm God in my world. That's pride. Every single time we disobey and we ignore God, live our life ignoring God, that's a whole life of pride and it results in all kinds of decisions based on pride. I'm going to serve me this way, I'm going to serve me this way, and so on and so forth. So it doesn't matter which sin, it just so happens this sin, unlike the other one which was a little pride and a lot of flesh, this one is all pride. I don't need God. Look at us. Look at our kingdom. We have finally arrived. And God says, oh, really? This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. We jump forward in this story. Verse 9. The Lord said to Gad, aren't you glad that's not your name? Especially hated if your first initial was E. Anyway, never mind. The Lord said to Gad, David Seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So here's, before this verse, David says, I have sinned greatly before you, which is really interesting because we read of confession prayer after committing adultery. He says, I have sinned before the Lord. My sin is before the Lord. Here he says, I have sinned greatly before you. And he's asking for forgiveness, and this is what the prophet says. Go and tell David, this is what he says. Now, you have three options. Parents, you ever do this? You get them in trouble. Okay, you have this option, this option, or this option. It's like restriction for 22 days or, you know, whatever. You come up with the options. Or 22 spankings. Never do that. Anyway, but here we have the three options that that the prophet says that God is saying. You can choose from three years of famine. The nation has been through famine before. Three years? Can you imagine? You can't find food. People are dying left and right. You could choose three years of famine or three months where you're swept away by the enemy swords. You think you're so awesome. You think you've got so many swords and so many trained men that you're invincible. Just uh, choose three months without my hand of favor here where they start winning battles and they get more and more courage because they're winning. Would you want three months of that? Or three days with the sword of the Lord. What's the sword of the Lord? Pestilence that follows. He even said it. So David thinks about it, thinks about it. Here's the answer that we get from David. He chooses. Next verse, please. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Wouldn't you be? I mean, what would you choose? Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel. That's the sword. A plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead in that three-day period. Ba-bum-bum. That would be like, right? Sorry. It doesn't end there. David sees an angel of the Lord with the sword still out. This is a vision with it drawn toward Jerusalem, and he's freaking out. Jerusalem. No, no, not Jerusalem. It's going to continue. Now, before we continue on, my math isn't that strong because I haven't had math since high school. And <clears throat> I'm just thinking, the first sin, there is four people dead. One, two, three, four. And this sin, we got up to 70,000. Okay, my math's not that strong, but I think this one's worse. Right? This is pretty 
bad stuff. He and the elders fall on their faces in, in sackcloth and ashes and are crying out in humility before the God. And David is crying out, God, God, why are you doing this? I'm the one that sinned. These are just sheep. I'm the shepherd. Take me and my family out. What are you doing? That's humility. Take me out? Whoa, he's really entered into the right frame of mind here. It's my fault, not their fault. I'm not even trying to answer the question, what is God doing? But I think it's a mercy. It's a mercy to stop the pride so that he can bless the nation and continue to bless David and continue to bless the nation. And he's bringing mercy. And finally, when there's humility, the vision of the warrior angel sheathes his sword and Jerusalem is protected. Now, to make some sense out of this, I cobbled together some thoughts from smarter people than me, but I put so many of these smart thoughts together, it's a little bit tough in one paragraph, but here we go. We're going to be explaining why God opposes the proud. We're going to look at that phrase, opposes the proud, which is a New Testament quote from James, and he says, God opposes the proud. And I'm going to try to explain why that is the case. Why when pride rises up, does God oppose it? Why is pride exactly the opposite? Why is it darkness and God light? Why is there a clash between our pride and God's will? Pride is a preoccupation uh, with self. Pride is an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-importance, self-exaltation. Pride ignores God. Pride shows contempt or indifference toward others. Pride completely undermines love. Now, I'm going really fast here, and it's a little hard to track with all these really massive statements. So I just want to hang on to this one right here. Pride completely undermines love. I had an example of that take place this week in my life. Crud. <laughs> and it's, of course, on the week that I'm preaching on pride, right? So my sweet bride, Gina, said something light, like, what I heard was, you made such a mess of this. But that is not what she said. Call it old age and hard hearing and distance or satanic intrusion. Call it what you want. She didn't say, you have made a mess of this. She said, this, is, this has made such a mess of this or something like that. And I, in my very humble, meek and mild way, wanted to investigate to see what it was she said. So very calmly I said, you said what? <laughs> and it, it sounded worse. It sounded like a Because inside my pride went, that's unfair of you to assess this situation like it's my fault. Rawr! And you just said what? And then she quickly corrected me. By that time it's hard to retract the cat, you know? It's a okay? So, there, that's pride rah, completely undermines love, okay? So I just want you to understand that when you are promoting self, self-interest, self-centeredness, my will, my way in a relationship, that happily ever after thing is gonna be challenged, all right? Pride undermines contentment. When pride is full-grown, it will throw common sense out the window. Hey, think of David. Common sense out the window. Pride, by the way, folks, is at epidemic proportions in our culture today. 
I see three of you nodding. Glad to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that's just kind of an overview of why pride is so bad. Here's Warren Wearsby. Uh, he's the one that we got the three different ideas from that this series is built on. His a statement about pride. Warren Wearsby, whenever you act, you and I act in direct disobedience to the will of God, we are displaying pride and independence. Ignoring God, living my own life, being my own boss, doing my own thing. I want to climb the ladder and achieve and succeed, and here I go. And that is leading to all kinds of decisions that are prideful. Now, just to give you some more examples from the scriptures, and we could just pile these one after the other, but this next one is another one of those good stories. We're going to jump into 2 Chronicles chapter 26. This is King Uzziah. This is years later in history. Another great king. He became really powerful, okay? Now, before we keep moving on, let me just describe his power. Um, He was really innovative. He commissioned groups of people to invent uh, war inventions, So in Israel, they had a particular kind of war machine that would send mass amounts of arrows from the top of their fortified cities to all the sieging warriors beneath. Do you like that one? Okay, just try to do that one with rocks because he had inventions of these rock-flinging things too. So these innovations really made him powerful to fortify their cities. But he wasn't just a warrior. He was a man of the soil. He loved what the earth could produce. And so the land that God had blessed was being more and more blessed, and he just was growing fat and sassy as a king. This is amazing. I have the favor of God. God is with me. But then we read the setup. His pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And everybody said, (gasps) okay, it's like, huh? What is the big deal about burning incense in the temple? Ooh, this is a big fat no-no for anybody but the descendants of Aaron who have been appointed as priests who are authorized as officials of the temple to go in and serve the temple. The king got too big for his britches and he says, God has blessed me. I'm his man. I'm going to go in and burn incense to God. Then one of the priests got really, really brave and went in to confront the king. Let's keep reading. When Azariah, who is the chief priest, got really, really brave, by the way, he brought in 80 others. So he wasn't really, really brave. He was just mostly brave. 80 other priests, they're going to come in to talk to the king. Now, you need to understand that a king has the authority to lop off heads just at a spoken word, right? So you got to be brave to confront a king, Okay. Now, what takes place then is interesting. Uh, I skipped the part where the king goes into a rage. I want you to picture the rage, okay? Picture the king. He thinks he's something. And now these somebodies who don't have the power like I have are trying to stop me from doing something. And he got red face, right? Picture the bulging, bulging veins. Okay, I just want to pause right there with that picture. Red face, bulging veins, angry because his goal is being blocked by these peons, right? All right, here's where the application comes in. Anytime you get angry, ask yourself, what goal is being blocked? Okay? It might just be road rage. What goal is being blocked? Can you believe that people that drive that slow on the road? Right? In front of you? Can't they get over to the right lane? 
What pride is rising up inside of you as your goal is being blocked? Those are very real things that God is opposed to in you. Okay? Now, back to the scene. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. Picture big red tomato, bulging veins, all of a sudden white splotch. Okay? Leprosy shows up. They go, horror. And then the king stops his rage, and he totally shifts gear from anger rage to total abject terror. They saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. Now, we just need some context here. Most of us are pretty afraid of cancer, the big C word. In their day, they were terrified of leprosy, the big L word. In our day, even if you have cancer, it might mean death, it might not mean death, but it's very frightening. But it doesn't mean social ostracism. It doesn't mean isolation. In their day, leprosy meant you were isolated. You had to be separate from everybody you loved, separate from everybody with the isolation of that disease. This king could never again enter into the temple. He could never again enter into relationships with others as leprosy hit him in judgment to his pride. Point number two. We need a battle strategy. We need a battle strategy that works against Satan when he comes knocking. And you're thinking, Jim, we've been talking about God. We've been talking about God coming against us. Hey, I said earlier, Satan fell when his pride rose up. He went down because God's opposition came against him. He knows the strategy to take us down with him. All he's got to do is puff up our pride. And he's got this superb one-two punch combination, puff up pride a little bit, and now he doesn't even have to take the second swing because when you're prideful, God is now going to intervene to take your pride down because pride is in a direct opposition to truth and light and the fact that he's creator. Now, this is a negative kind of pride that says, I don't need him. I've got this. I'm good. Okay, so this is huge. We need a battle plan to solve this. And James gives us one. James 4, 6 or 7 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Would you say that out loud with me? God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Which line do you want? Yeah, nice. Ding, ding, ding. All right, so submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All right? Now, I want to just take a moment to highlight three military terms just from this section. We're going to start with this word right here. Okay, resist. A military term. Of course, if you're fighting the devil and he comes to you, hey, want this, and you don't resist, you lose the battle, right? It requires resistance. But resistance by itself will get you nowhere with the devil. Why? Because the devil's bigger than you, stronger than you. He has studied humanity for thousands of years and knows psychology better than you. He will get to your strong points or your weak points, and he will win. What do you mean? What about when you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, back off, be cast out, I bind you and put you in the pit. And he says, who are you? He says, who are you if God is not favoring you with his authority and protection and victory? 
Take a look at the other military term, opposes. See that right there? Well, you used to be able to see it until it smattered it. All right, God opposes the proud. Opposition is a battle term. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in opposition with God. That's like worse than opposition with Satan. Satan has a limited amount of power. God has infinite power. Never put yourself in a position to be in opposition with God. But pride puts you there. That's why it's so huge that we show the truth that for the favor of God, we need to humble ourselves. And so we get to the third. This is the key one right here. Submit. All of our favorite words. We love the word submit. Right? No. It's like the opposite of what any of us want to do. But let's look at it in military terms. It's a military word. A military submission is this. I voluntarily submit myself to the higher ranking power. If I do not voluntarily submit myself to the higher ranking power, it's not the enemy who takes me out. Who takes me out? The higher ranking power on my military team. If I show insubordination and lack of submission, the power above me says, who, what's with the attitude? Push-ups. That's a nice way of putting it. All right, so... Submit. So, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We're over time, so let's go to the conclusion here. The next verse. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Satan's not afraid of you, but if you humble yourself before the Lord, here's what happens. When you humble yourself before the Lord, the Lord draws near to you. When you eliminate pride and you submit to him, his authority, his accomplished victory, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross rests over you. The kingdom of God and his light rests in you. You submit and pray, God, I'm weak, you're strong. I need your authority, I need your kingdom, I need you and me. He says, amen to that, you've got it. And then the devil comes to you and you say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're out of here. And he goes, because he's nothing but a cockroach in face of the light of the kingdom of God and his infinite power. You've got nothing on your own. You cannot resist on your own. But if you humble yourself before God and submit to him now, God's favor and blessing and authority and kingdom in Christ Jesus covers you. Not too long ago, I felt like I was in a little cul-de-sac wasn't really feeling breakthrough. And then he just highlighted something in my life that I had not submitted. I had not given over. I had not given up. I still wanted this area. Just want to control. I just want to do this. Just with, just with me. As soon as I gave it up, I moved past the cul-de-sac. More authority, more breakthrough, more answers, more favor. On the screen is a prayer I want us to read quietly because in a moment I want us to read it out loud if you agree with it. Read this with me, quietly.
I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know if inside of you, you're still resisting the idea of submitting to God. You'd rather run your own life and you don't really want to let go. But if something inside of you is resonating right now because the Spirit of God is pressing upon you, you want favor, you want blessing, you want God's kingdom, you want that protection, you want to be on God's side, you don't want the opposition coming to drop you down some notches, then this is a time. This is a time to confess it and pray it out loud. There's something powerful about speaking that confession. Let's stand together and speak it together. If you're not ready for it, just be silent until God really presses on your heart. But if you're ready, speak it out loud. Ready? Dear God, the world tells me that humility is weakness, but you have told me to humble myself before you. So I declare right now that I need you. I submit to you and resist the devil's scheme to make me think I can handle life on my own. I am weak and you are strong. My strength comes from you. The devil knows it. He runs from you, not me. Thank you for your love, forgiveness, favor, and power available to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are so good. Thank you. Amen.